So how many of you have ever tried to sit still and be silent for five minutes and found it to be really challenging? Right? Like, I think, I think we love the idea of silence, like, ah, oh, silence. But then when we actually, like, set yourself in a room by yourself, kids are sleeping, spouse is sleeping, this isn't like silence, like the end of a long day with people kind of silence. This is like first thing in the morning, I'm going to pursue Jesus kind of silence. And you'll find it's incredibly complex, incredibly challenging, yet at the same time, so very simple. Get up, sit down, don't talk. Right? And then I think of the many sermons that we've probably all heard on prayer. How many of you have heard a sermon on prayer? Yes. And I think one of the interesting things that we preachers like to do in preaching is convince you praying is indeed easy. And so you can't use difficulty as an excuse. We like to say things like, well, prayer is just like having a conversation. It's easy. But then we proceed to give you a list of 20 acronyms to help you pray. Simple, yet obviously complex if we need all the acronyms, which, by the way, I'm not a fan of, so I'm not going to give you any acronyms this morning. And then, and then you have texts in the whole of Scripture. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5, tells us to pray without ceasing. And that just sounds daunting. And let me just ask, I mean, how are you doing? Right? Like, that's a command from the Apostle Paul to the church. Pray without ceasing. Pray unceasingly. In the Greek, it means unceasing. Without stopping. Right? And that just overwhelms us. I remember early days as a follower of Jesus hearing that text and just being like, how in the world is that supposed to happen? Do these people not understand what our days look like? How are we supposed to pray without ceasing? So I hope you see that prayer is simple, yes, but it's also complex. And within its complexity is great simplicity, and within its simplicity is great complexity. You understand. But regardless of where we might land in our experience of prayer, Jesus' invitation and encouragement through this text to his disciples is to pray. He wants us to be comfortable with praying. I like what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say about this. He says, quote, I cannot imagine a better, more cheering, or a more comforting statement with which to face all the uncertainties and hazards of our life in this world of time than that contained in verses 7 through 11. So as we work our way through this text in which Jesus encourages us, encourages us to ask and to seek and knock, he's clearly encouraging us to pray. What we see Jesus doing is he's working to do away with all that we might invent in our minds to discourage us from prayer. And so whatever excuse we might have this morning for why we don't pray or why we find prayer difficult or Whatever, whatever excuses come to mind as we enter into this topic, Jesus is working to do away with all of it. He is working to move these things out of our mind that we wouldn't be discouraged, but rather encouraged to pray. And so here's our main point this morning that we'll be working through. It's that Jesus encourages us to pray by pointing us to the goodness of the Father. That's it. Jesus encourages us to pray by pointing us to the goodness of the Father. And we'll work this out with two points. Number one, we're gonna look at Jesus' motivation for prayer. And number two, we'll look at Jesus' process for prayer. Okay, Jesus' motivation and Jesus' process. Number one, Jesus' motivation. So let's look at the text again. Here in Matthew 7. I'm just going to start there again in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, 
and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus is, remember, imagine the scene. Jesus' disciples are before him, and then behind his disciples is a crowd. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, which, by the way, we should be encouraged by. Right, that, that Jesus' disciples who spent night and day with Jesus and who lived in a culture saturated with scripture and prayer ask Jesus how to pray. So don't be discouraged that it's something that we have to take time to learn. So he's, he has his disciples before him teaching them how to pray. Really, I think we can think of this as a continuation of the Lord's Prayer as well. Jesus has already laid out some pretty clear guidelines for us in prayer in Matthew 6. And then there's kind of this continuation for us. And and the only point that Jesus really wants us to see is that prayer is rooted in this love of the Father. This is what Jesus wants us to see, right? Now, prayer, prayer is good. Prayer is essential. And as followers of Jesus, we can't live lives apprenticed to Jesus without prayer. So when we talk about apprenticed to Jesus, we're talking about being disciples, being followers. I think it captures the idea of what it means to be a Christian better than the word Christian. To be apprenticed means we're learning the ways of Jesus. And to do so requires prayer. We have to be a people of prayer. We shouldn't want to live without prayer. Yet, I would guess, and this could be just speculation, that many of us here feel somewhat guilty when it comes to prayer. Anyone? Anyone feel guilty? Good. One honest hand. Thank you so much. Now, a lot of you shook your heads. Yeah. I think when it comes to prayer, we feel really down. Generally speaking, I think we live our lives believing that we don't pray enough. Right? Anyone? Yeah, more hands. Good. Yeah, we live constantly believing we don't pray enough. And here's, here's the reality. Perhaps we're right. It's interesting. I just finished up a book yesterday, and he, he, the author, uh, the book is called Live No Lies uh, by John Mark Comer, and he has this whole section talking about guilt and how guilt actually can be a good thing. Guilt is something that uh, it makes us aware of our conscience, right? It makes us, that's a good thing for us to be aware of, like, oh, man, maybe, maybe this is something for me to, to check into. Perhaps maybe I don't pray as I should. But I think the problem then becomes this, is that we often move from guilt to then very poor and misguided motivations for prayer. At the top of the list being guilt. And here's the thing is, guilt is not intended to motivate us to pray. It might reveal something to us about prayer, about our souls in particular, but it's not intended to be the motivator in regards to prayer. And here's what it might sound like. It might sound something like this. You should be praying more, and if you're not, then. Which is really just a a combination of guilt and shame, right? Because guilt is dealing with the action in particular, which is the, you should be praying more. And then it moves into shame, which is the, if you're not, then, you fill in the blank, and you create this false reality about who you are. That doesn't motivate us. How, how has that worked for any of us when it comes to prayer? Not at all. Thankfully, this isn't how Jesus works. And so within this, Jesus he gives us one key point there, the love of the Father, but within this also, there's two good motives for prayer. So let's look at these respectively. First, the love of the Father. The first Motive for prayer that Jesus gives us is the overall love and character 
of God the Father there specifically in verse 11. Right, like if you're an underliner, Bible highlighter, I would mark verse 11. Right? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The standard way of teaching that Jesus uses, kind of this uh, lesser to greater argument, right? If you then, that is us, who are evil... Uh, which we're not going to get sidetracked by Jesus' understanding of humanity there. But Jesus understands, and I think we understand as well, right? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, which, you know, pause for a moment and just think about that one, how much more then will your Father who is in heaven, who is filled with abundance and has all things, give good gifts to his children? This is Jesus' argument. Here's how... Scott McKnight puts this in his commentary. He says, quote, Jesus' words in this text may be the most insightful words in the entire Bible on how to motivate people to pray. Instead of using guilt to motivate, we need to cast a compelling vision of the goodness of our Father. Knowing God's love, knowing God's goodness, and learning to embrace those attributes of God prompt us to pray. So this is the reality that Jesus wants to set our attention to, is the, the goodness of the Father. So ask yourself this question then. How do you view the Father? Our, our understanding of God as followers of Jesus is that he is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, and so we need to ask, because Jesus tells us to pray, to, to talk to the Father, right? to ask the Father, to seek the Father. And so we have to ask, how do we view God the Father? Ask that question to yourself right now. How do you relate to him? Because our view of God the Father, simply put, is paramount to the way that we go about praying. If, if we don't embrace this reality that God is our good, loving, perfect, heavenly Father, we will not delight to seek him. And here, here's why. If we don't understand him as Father, we'll understand him in other ways. And I think there's two primary ways that we'll understand him. First, we'll understand him more along the lines of deism. And deism is just simply this. It's that God exists, but is detached and uninvolved. I think a lot of people in the church live in this reality. God exists. I have no problem believing in God. I have a real problem believing he cares. I have a real problem believing he has any concern whatsoever about the day-to-day aspects of my life. And I really have a hard time believing that he listens to me when I pray. And, and here's the reality is if, if that's our perspective of God the Father, yeah, we're definitely not going to, to seek him in prayer. Why would, we, why would we pursue relationship with someone who's detached and uninvolved? I think we can think of that in our own personal relationship experiences. How much fun is it to pursue relationship with someone who is detached and uninvolved? You're like, gosh, I really want to talk to that person. No. But often that's our perspective of who God the Father is. That's false. The second wrong way we go about understanding God the Father then is this, is if he is involved, he's just disappointed. So either he's detached and uninvolved, or if he is involved with you, certainly he's disappointed. And I think, in part, this just hits to the deep father wound that many of us have. Like, for many of us, that is the aching question of our souls, is our father pleased or is our father disappointed? And all too often, the experience that we've had is one of 
disappointment, right? And so then, either we don't pray at all because God's just uninvolved, or we spend more time trying to prove ourselves than just being in communion with the Father, Right, so here, here, let's think of it this. If our understanding of who God the Father is is that he's just disappointed with us, then guess what we spend our time trying to do when we're praying? Well, we, we spend our time trying to prove ourselves. We, we spend our time trying to perform in some way, shape, or form. And so that's why many of us, the, the hang-up is, for example, we don't know what words to use. It's kind of like the classic weird expectation that God wants us to speak beautiful, crisp, old English, <laughs> or, or that somehow, some way, when we, when we go to God the Father in prayer, it's just supposed to be this eloquent, thought-out performance. In which God the Father would be like, wow, amazing. And so whatever it might look like, we just spend our time trying to prove ourselves to God the Father, which just doesn't work. Like if, if, our, if our experience of, of, of prayer is this performance in which we're trying to prove ourselves, we'll never get there. We just won't get there. And so something has to shift in our thinking and in our understanding of who God is. And this is what Jesus teaches us. Jesus' key teaching here is that the Father is good. How much more then will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so Jesus' example there is simple. He, 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 he wants us to think in terms of ourselves and our own experience with our kids. As, as parents, for those of us in here who are parents or who have been parents, generally speaking, when your kid comes and asks you something, you have a desire to give them good things, Right? And so Jesus' whole point is, if, if you then who are evil know how to even give good gifts to your children, we have to understand that God the Father is so beyond and away from the category of evil. And so then he obviously knows how to give good gifts to his children. So we need to remember who the Father is. We need to remember, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that the character of God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Remember, that's the most quoted verse in the Hebrew Bible. From Exodus 34, 6, the most quoted verse in the Hebrew Bible is this reality. The, the, the Jewish people had a, a holy and reverent fear of, of God, absolutely. They were, they were, most of the time, painfully aware of their shortcomings, of their sin. Yet they repeatedly come back to this reality of who God the Father is. That he's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Furthermore, in Christ, we as followers of Jesus, our beloved children. So Jesus' teaching here is key in that he's teaching us to pray to a close, attentive, caring, listening father. And Jesus' emphasis on who the father is, uh, though not entirely new, to his disciples' hearers or ears is certainly unique. God wasn't most commonly understood as Father. 
You kind of have like a few smatterings of this understanding uh, of who God is. But Jesus brings it to the forefront, and you'll see over and over and over again in the Gospels that Jesus refers to God as Father. And so he wants us to understand that in him, by grace, through faith, in his finished work, that for those of us who, who have become aware of our rebellion, who have become aware of our rejection of God and have turned away from that reality and turned to follow Jesus, that we are welcomed in as beloved sons and daughters. The beauty of the gospel this morning is that as a follower of Jesus, you are a beloved son or daughter of the king. And what this means is first and foremost that he's very involved. Anything but distant. Anything but unattentive. He is near. He is close. He is present. And most wonderfully, he's not disappointed. He's not disappointed. Again, I, I think Jesus intends for us to understand this in light of our own familial experiences, whether good or bad. You know, it's interesting. This hit me a couple weeks ago uh, on Wednesday night when we had the foster parent training night. And One of the things that was helpful for me to understand uh, as, what was her name? Susan. As Susan was working through through this and helping us to understand the family backgrounds, was that even though, you know, foster care is a result of parents who've essentially messed up in some way, shape, or form really bad. But what, what what she highlighted for us was that those parents still want to give good to their children, like it's 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 not like they're celebrating their screw ups. There's there's still a desire to give these good gifts to their children. Okay, and and so that's just thinking in terms of like some of the worst scenarios. So your scenario could be bad, or your scenario can also be good. And so in our own experiences of being parented or being parents. Think of it like this. We're not usually quick to be disappointed in what our children ask us. And and even even when our children come with a lack of clarity or obnoxiousness, once we work through our own sins in that, I think at the end of it, our desire is still to give good gifts to our children. And so, but what Jesus wants to highlight for us is that the posture of the Father towards us, it's not like anything that we've experienced. In many ways, it's just kind of this out of this world reality that we have to learn to come to grips with that we're beloved sons and daughters, that the Father is not displeased, that he enjoys us being in his presence. He enjoys being in our presence. He's not sitting with his arms crossed and his head going like this, waiting for you to get your act together. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8 for us. He says in Romans 8, verse 12, so then... Brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Which will tie us back into our text here eventually. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received. This is for us, followers of Jesus. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, children, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are 
children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The point being this, that by the Spirit making our hearts new, we're made to be children of God, and then we share in all of the blessings, all of the gifts, all that belongs to the Father is ours. So if we can imagine that our Heavenly Father is really abundantly rich in everything, and it all belongs to us. And that's what he desires to give us. He is that kind of father. So, is your faith and hope in Jesus? If so, you're a beloved child. Which means this. Tim Keller, he kind of summarizes the gospel in this beautiful way that I think is helpful here. It's that the gospel is that you are more sinful than you ever dared to believe. Right? Like, so think of how sinful you are, and you're more sinful. <laughs> like we, we, can't even, we can't even conjure it up. It's so deep. Right? But you are more loved than you ever dared to imagine. The good news for us in Jesus is that we are more sinful than we ever dare to believe, but you are more loved than you could ever imagine. How's that for motivation? Isn't that different than you should be doing more? That's Jesus' motivation for us, the love of the Father. Secondarily, though, we also have love of neighbor. So this is verse 12. Uh, I, don't, I think our English Bibles do an unhelpful job of breaking this up for us. I don't think verse 12 goes with verse 13. I really think it belongs back up in there. Uh, and so the, the secondary motivation, we'll be brief with this one, is simply love of neighbor. Okay? Uh, it's interesting, some scholars would say that Matthew 7 is in a kind of more of an eclectic set of teachings within the Sermon on the Mount, kind of like it's more like Jesus' random add-ons. Uh, I don't buy it because Matthew seems to be a genius who very, very carefully crafted his gospel. Uh, and so I think that there is intent in how this has been structured. And so I think that 1 through 12 is all connected. And if that's the case, then what Jesus wants to see here is a picture of the great commandment, which is what? Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in, in 7, 1 through 12, we have this very clear picture, right? 1 through 6 is about not judging. Uh, or as we've been talking about, how to properly correct one another. And so we're dealing very specifically there with how it is that we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then here in this section that we are at this morning, Jesus is teaching us specifically about the love of the Father and then it just kind of culminates in this, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And I hope that we don't read that and go, oh gosh, that's easy. No, Jesus wants us to come to a place of like, hmm, that's a little challenging. How then should we go about loving our father, first and foremost, and then second, loving our neighbor as ourselves? Guess what? We've got to be a people of prayer. I think there absolutely has to be a connection here in some way, shape, or form that if we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, which we might come back to verse 12 specifically at another time, because I think there's a couple sermons there, at least one. I mean, I think we live in a world where we don't even know how to love ourselves, which is interesting in a love yourself world. <laughs> we're just really bad at it. 
and we're not even aware. Point is this, though. In order to love the Father and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to do to them what we would want done to us, we need to be a people dependent on the Father, on the Spirit, in prayer. And so Jesus is teaching the centrality of prayer for both. And so that's the the motivating force behind prayer for us, is the fact that the Father loves us, And because of the love of the Father for us, we too love the Father and our desire is to love our neighbor. And we know that we can't love our neighbor in and of our own strength. And so we're dependent upon the Spirit in prayer. It's Trinitarian. So number two then, Jesus' process for prayer. Jesus' process. Now that we're properly motivated... How should we then go about prayer? And so Jesus' formula, I don't know if that's the best word, formula, that's what I came up with, is ask, seek, and knock. And then what Jesus does is he doubly emphasizes it. So it's not just ask, seek, knock. It's then again, verse 8, for everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus is working to make a point. That's why he says this thing twice. So then what is Jesus teaching us? Okay, well, two things primarily here as well. First, he's teaching us that we're to pray persistently and awarely, which is a word, by the way. I looked it up. If it, if it sounds goofy, it's not. And we are to pray expectantly. So let's work through these here. First, we're to pray persistently and awarely. And specifically, when we talk about awareness, we're talking about an awareness of the Father's presence, which we'll get to here. So, persistently and awarely. It's not that we're to be persistent because God is distant, but rather because he is close and good and we're his children. So again, one more time, we can think of how children persist in asking things of their parents. Anyone experience this at all? Yes. Just yesterday, had our, little, our, our little girl was asking us for yogurt, and it wasn't time for yogurt. <laughs> and so I had to say no. And then uh, she came back and asked like two minutes later, no. <laughs> and then she skipped me, and she went to her mom. And I was like, no. <laughs> I said no. There is, a, there is a childlike persistence that Jesus invites us into here. Now, I think what's also important for us to understand is that persistence is different from repetition. Jesus rebuked the religious people in, at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, right? He said, don't pray like the Gentiles who like to heap up empty phrases, because they think that they'll be heard for their many words. And so they had these kind of repetitive patterns of praying that they would use, and they thought that simply by their repetition, simply by saying the same thing over and over and over again, that they would be heard and answered in the way that they wanted to be answered. Again, think of your children. How does that go? (laughs) So persistence, though, is not that. Persistence is not just heaping up empty phrases trying to get God's attention, which is important. We can't actually push persistence too far because then we might verge into believing that we're kind of playing some hide-and-seek game with God. And that's not the case. Again, I think this is another huge misunderstanding in this text in particular. It makes it sound like God is hiding somewhere. Like, okay, I ask. Oh, he's not answering. Oh, I guess I better seek a little bit harder. He's not answering. Oh, I guess I better knock and pound on the door and see if we can get him to hear us now. Um, so I took some time to try to work through what Jesus is saying. And I believe, I believe that ask, seek, and knock has more to do with presence than it has to do with persistence. And so this is why the point is that we're to pray persistently and awarely. So yes, there is to be a persistence. Jesus' encouragement is like, 
The Father desires to give good gifts. Don't be afraid to ask and be willing to keep asking. He's not going to be disgruntled. He's not going to be disappointed. He's not going to be annoyed. We are free to be persistent as his beloved children. But then also, we're to be aware of the fact that he's present with us. And here's where I think this comes out through other scriptures. Keep in mind that Jesus was a good Jewish man, which means that he was a person saturated in the Hebrew scriptures. So a lot of what Jesus teaches us is alluding in some way, shape, or form to what we call the Old Testament, which is really important. Just as a Bible reading point, if you're like, I don't want to read the Old Testament, that makes no sense to me, you're wrong. <laughs> Actually, it will, it will so greatly illuminate the New Testament for us if we would be people who are also saturated in the Old Testament. Just a side point. But here's, here's something that potentially Jesus might have had in mind. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse 6, says this. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So hold on to that. And then you have also Psalm 32, verse 6. It says this. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Then it goes on to say, because surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. So if I'm tracking correctly, Jesus isn't saying to us that we have to seek God the Father because he's somewhere else. Instead, what he wants, the aspects of wisdom that's being taught here is this, is seek God. God, be aware of God's presence in the good times so that when he feels distant in the bad times, you'll remember his presence in the good times. Does that make sense? I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Because if, if you were to just follow some of the, the, the hyperlinks, so to speak, back to the Old Testament, where you see things where the people of Israel are asking and seeking and knocking, it's always alluding to this reality that God is present with them. And it's an encouragement, like, no, wake up, be aware of the fact that the Father is present with you here, now. Seek him now while he may be found. And it's not that he's going to be gone someday, but our lives, riddled with stiff-necked rebelliousness will someday get us to a point where we're going to have some questions. And so we seek the Father persistently and aware of his presence now while he may be found and sort of like hold on to that for the long haul. I think that's in part what Jesus is getting at here in his process for prayer. The point overall being that God is home, right? Like knock, and and it's kind of knock, not as if the door's not going to open. It's knock expecting the Father is with us. He's present. So then we're also to pray expectantly, persistently and awarely, and then also expectantly. So again, this just brings us back to the fact that the Father delights to give good things to those who ask him. And so Jesus teaches us to pray and to expect that God is going to give good things. Now this, of course, then leads to all sorts of questions. Anyone? Questions about this? (laughs) I try to assume uh, that we might ask things like, well, what then should we ask for. Ask, seek, and knock sounds pretty open-ended. So are we just free to ask for whatever we want? No. (laughs) Boom. There, I'm just going to (laughs) pray. And then, what do we do when we don't get what we want? I think that's the other reality that we often are confronted with when it comes to prayers. We wind up disappointed. 
We wind up believing, I didn't get what I wanted, like a spoiled little brat. (laughs) So then, what does Jesus teach us? Well, in prayer, Jesus teaches us, in prayer, we'll start with this. Ask, seek, knock is not open-ended. Specifically, the Father wants to give us good things, so then I think we need to assume that we ought to learn to ask for good things. Yeah, we ought to learn to ask for good things. But, but, there's a strong temptation to ask for wrong things. Thankfully, the Bible helps us with this as well. So James, the letter of James is really interesting in regards to prayer, but helpful as well. Listen to what James says in chapter one, verse five and six. Listen to what he says here first. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, God, wisdom being a good thing, he says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Sounds really close to the words of Jesus. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Thanks, James. Hold on to that. And then go over a couple of pages to James 4. Verse 1, we'll do specifically 1 through 3 right here. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Specifically, God. You do not have because you do not ask God. Verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? We'll stop there. So one, chapter one, five through six, in essence, is a rebuke of asking, I think, unexpectedly. Or, sorry, unexpectantly. Jesus is teaching us to ask, to pray with expectation. Jesus is, or James then says, stop wavering. Like if you want to ask, if you want to pray, then pray. And his rebuke is of that unexpected kind of like, oh, I don't know, sort of prayer. And then chapter four, verse one through three is just an outright rebuke of asking God for things with wrong motivations. In other words, to just kind of seal the deal for us, God is not a cosmic genie. There's always tension in this, right? God desires to give us good gifts. God also knows the day and age that we live in. He knows that we live in a culture of affluence. And so the tension is this. On on one hand, God cares about our houses and our cars and so on and so forth. On the other hand, he doesn't. Simply because there's more important matters. And there's better gifts. Because I think, I think when it comes to asking for wrong things, I don't, I don't know, the tendency in my own life would just be to ask for stuff. I want more of whatever, or I want a better whatever. I want a car that doesn't have 206,000 miles on it. Like, no, what I want here, this is my soul, guys. Um, I want a car that connects to my phone with Bluetooth. <laughs> Do you know how inconvenient it is to plug in a wire? 
to play Spotify or a podcast, right? Anyone? Does anyone else have to deal with that? Thank you, Tracy. Man, when I get to go on trips, I get to rent cars, and they all have Bluetooth, and they, I open the door, and I sit in the seat, and it connects to my phone. Anyways, and I've asked, God, can I just please have a car that, like, connects to... That would be an example I think of asking wrongly, because <laughs> it just completely misses the point of prayer. Like, it completely misses the idea of what good gifts... God actually has in store for us. And so the rebuke from James and the teaching of Jesus is for us to understand that God's not a cosmic genie. N.T. Wright says this. He says, quote, for most of us, the problem is not that we are too eager to ask for the wrong things. In other words, I think the desire to ask for the wrong things comes in every once in a while. But it's not the, it's not the most consistent theme of our lives, actually. The problem, Wright continues, is that we are not eager enough to ask for the right things. We, we often find ourselves in some sort of middle ground of like, I just don't know what to ask, and so therefore I'm not going to ask. And James would say, you do not have because you do not ask. So then what are the good things that Jesus wants us to seek and pray for? Well, he doesn't tell us in the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> but in Luke... We're told specifically, uh, I'm gonna, I think it's Luke 12. Does anyone know what the answer is? Oh, I heard it. The Holy Spirit. Yeah. In, in Luke, the specific words are that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Right? And so Jesus' good things is the Holy Spirit and the gifts that the Spirit gives. And so I think on one hand, you have the, the fruit of the Spirit. What, what ought we to ask for? Well, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And in receiving those gifts, our hearts become more properly ordered in order to delight in the Father. And we see the, the physical material things as great, they're good things, but we are also able to settle that they're not ultimate things, that are going, they're, they're not going to satisfy us the way that this good gift of the Spirit is going to satisfy us. Right? And so the Father delights to give the Holy Spirit and I hope that doesn't fall as a disappointment, right? I, th I, think, I think that can tend to be a disappointment, right? The Father delights to give good things. What is the good thing? The Holy Spirit. Ah. <laughs> when in actuality, this is the greatest gift. Right? Go read John 14, 15, 16. So... I want to work through some practical things for us here. Well, we'll get to this in just a moment. For one thing, what Jesus wants us to understand in asking for good things is that prayer is a matter of formation to the Father's will. Okay? In prayer, what we're doing is we're being formed to the will of the Father. James again picks this up for us in um, again, he goes on here, verse four. You adulterous people, do do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay? This is all formation language. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. In other words, prayer isn't us trying to force God into something. There's a submission to an ultimate authority, and then thus a formation into who the Father wants us to be. 
So it's submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's all a formation in who, into who the Father wants us to be. And then, again, back in Isaiah 55, after verse 6, it goes on saying, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord." For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I think in Jesus' teaching of the good things of the Holy Spirit, what we have then for ourselves is a request that the Father would give us the Spirit in abundance. And then from there, our lives are in active submission to the will of the Father, trusting that he is going to give good gifts. And then within this, what we understand is that prayer is a combination of boldly asking and humbly submitting. In other words, we get to a place of not acting like spoiled little brats. We don't find ourselves disappointed in the Father. Rather, we find ourselves trusting in the Father, knowing that he actually knows what's best for us. And remember, we've been communicating this all throughout the sermon, the Father delights to give you good things. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to flourish as a humanity. And so are we willing to submit to that reality? Now, I think we need to end on this, that essential to prayer then is saturation in Scripture. And this is where this is just going to be hopefully helpful on a practical sense. Um, When it comes to prayer, I don't think there's anything in Scripture that indicates that God is concerned with originality. God doesn't care how original you are. He doesn't doesn't care if you, like, came up with something on your own that was, like, beautiful and amazing. If you do, that's awesome, cool. It's no big deal. Because it's to the reverse, What is actually taught in Scripture is to pray Scripture. Our best prayers will come as we pray the Bible. And and we understand this because this is what the Old Testament people of God did. Guess what? They had an entire book that they called a prayer book, Psalms. The, The largest book in the Bible was their prayer book. And so we don't need to worry about trying to conjure up like original thoughts and language to pray. I think it's actually the exact opposite. I think we need to learn to open scripture. And then from there, working through these practices. So this is just kind of our practical, how then do we begin to ask and seek and knock? How can we learn to become a praying people, a praying church. Uh, so I think here's, here's the place where it starts. Practice silence. Practice silence. Knowing that it will be really challenging. But as we learn to sit in silence, it will begin to do things to reveal things in our souls. I would encourage you as you begin, I've just been trying to do this for the past few weeks. As you begin to do this, sit with a journal because you're going to have thoughts. You're going to be distracted actually quite a bit. You'll, you'll be amazed as you try to sit in silence how quick your mind wanders. And so there's a couple of things that you can do there. You can, you can jot those thoughts down. You're like, oh, then I'll be jotting thoughts down for forever. <laughs> Or, or, or it's a combination of these things. Or I was listening to a podcast on, on this, the practice of silence. 
And the question came, what, what about when I'm distracted? And he said, if you're distracted 100 times in silent prayer to Jesus, then that's 100 opportunities to return to prayer to Jesus. Right? It's just a simple reframing. Uh, and so it might, it might look like sitting in silence with your journal and discovering how you work with distractions, whether you have to write those down or memorize a verse. So I've been trying to work through, as I sit uh, in silence, if I get distracted, it goes to, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and so just having something to grab onto. And so begin the practice for whatever, two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, however much you can endure for a time. And then from there, move into praying a psalm. So our family's psalm as of late has been Psalm 90. Just been meditating on Psalm 90, trying to memorize Psalm 90. In particular, Lord, establish the work of our hands. And you can just, the way it works is you can just go through and you can just read a verse and then pray the verse. And like just kind of personalize it for where you're at. Pick one. There's 150. Pick one. And start working through it. Then... We can move from there to praying the Lord's Prayer. I'm just trying to lay out a framework for us. If you're wondering, like, where do we start? This is, this, is, this is where we start. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Remember, Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer to pray. Because he said, pray then like this. And the intention behind Jesus' words were that we would pray like this. And so pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, so on and so forth. And you can either, you can pray that, just that specifically, and from there you can, like you can go so many directions. Our Father in heaven, and then go. Man, you're amazing, you're incredible. You're, you're, the, 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 the heavens declare your handiwork, it's, it's amazing. I'm watching the sunrise this morning. You are incredible. Do you see how, see? It, go from there. Then, Perhaps we can move into praying the Jesus Creed as we already prayed here this morning, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It just, just puts us in a posture of submission before the Father. And then finally, if I could just encourage us to learn how to pray routinely. Don't be afraid of establishing some sort of set rhythm. Again, being spontaneous and original doesn't make you more spiritual and holy. So don't be afraid to like set an alarm to get up 20 minutes earlier. Don't be afraid to set an alarm at 10 o'clock and noon and three and have set times of prayer throughout your day. That's, that's not like a bad, evil, sinful, unholy, unspiritual thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus did it. No, he didn't have an iPhone. <laughs> but he lived in a culture that practiced set times of prayer. It was absolutely normal for, for his daily rhythm with a community to look like stopping at particular times to pray. And so make it routine, make it rhythm. Our conclusion is this, is our Father is good. Right? He is accessible to us. The invitation to us is to be a praying People And so by God's grace, let's mature into that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you invite us into a praying life with you. And that you, you give us a lifetime to work through the complexities of prayer and yet the simplicity of prayer. And so I pray this morning for us that we would know that as your children, you are delighted with us, that you delight to be with us, and that you are indeed present here with us now and always. And so teach us to pray with that awareness. And also, I pray, help us to slow down, help us to, to slow down, to take time to be still. Over and over and over again, your, your word tells us to be still, to wait, to be patient, and to know that you are God.
And so help us to be a people who are learning that reality. I pray help us to break through any barriers that we might have in our own lives when it comes to praying. And may we understand that it's not about getting anything other than you and knowing that you are the best gift. We pray this in Jesus' good name, amen.